Nezariah 7, verses 1 through 10. After these things, during the reign of Arts, I knew I was going to do this, Artis Caesar's king of Persia, Ezra, son of Sarariah, the son of Ezariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Ezariah, the son of Merioth, the son of Zerahiah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem. In the seventh year of King Artaxerxes, Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord, and to teaching it decrees and the laws in Israel. You ever have that situation where you hear a piece of music and it's familiar to you, but you don't know who did it, where it's from? Maybe you grew up in a house where song was just hummed in the kitchen around you, or you heard it on a commercial and it comes up, you're like, I know that song, but I don't know, can't quite place it, but it's stuck in your head. We have the Echo Alexa devices at home. And it has this game on it. You say, hey, Alexa, play song quiz. And it starts the game. You pick the decade, and it gives you a bunch of songs that you have to name. And often we'll run into that situation of like, I know that song. I've heard it on the radio all my life, but I have no idea who did it, no idea what it's called. So I thought we might play that a little bit today with the song. You're not going to pick the decade. Don't worry. I've already got the song picked out. But I'm going to play about 10 seconds of it. And if you know the song, tell me. Go, Dave. I heard a lot of Star Wars first service, too, and that's wrong. Rob? Ride of the Valkyries. Wagner, good job. You get more Rupert float after church today. Yes, I knew that song, but I didn't know where it was from or who made it. And actually, when I heard it growing up, this is the version that I heard. Be very quiet. I'm hunting rabbits. Thank you. 
rabbit wax. Same song, very different settings, but still the same tune. I think as Christians and people of faith, we know we follow an ideal, a perfect, and an immutable God. He is the master composer and conductor of everything in this world and the universe. He's the one who sets the tune behind everything. Yet we live in an impractical, imperfect, and chaotic world. The world very often is out of tune with what God is doing, constantly trying to play its own music. And as believers, we need to train our eyes, our ears, our heart, and our mind to pierce through everything impractical and imperfect in this world, to point at and to hear where God is at work, to see the path that God wants us to walk, to hear the original tune behind the messiness. Sometimes that's easy. Miracles happen. People are healed, and we can see God at work. But sometimes it's hard when we're going through hardship in life, through grief, through unsettling and disturbing times. Often we need to do work to reorient ourselves after those moments of disorientation, when things didn't go as we have expected. Today our hero is Ezra. Ezra comes from, appropriately, the book of Ezra in the Old Testament. And he shows up on the scene in Scripture at a very unique time in Israel's history, when they have to do some work to hear God's tune again, when they've gone through some significant disorientation. And Ezra has to do work to remind the people of God that God is at work and how they are being called to respond in a very unique moment. The foundational truth that I would hope that you would walk out with today is this. Whether the world realizes it or not, God is always at work. It's the responsibility of God's people to see it, point it out, and to respond in faith. So before we start talking about our hero Ezra, what's interesting about the book of Ezra, named after him, is he actually doesn't show up until much later in the book. Six chapters out of a ten-chapter book don't mention him at all. They mention a lot of goings-on in the world and what people are doing and how the Israelites are getting back into the land to build their temple. Chronologically, Ezra comes well after the story we heard last week, Ruth. So if you think about your Bible history, Exodus and with Moses and Joshua is all about entering the promised land, crossing over the river, entering the land of Canaan, what God had promised to his people. Judges and Ruth are when the people are in the land, but there is no king, and everybody's doing as they please. First and second Samuel, first and second Kings, and first and second Chronicles are when they're in the land with a king. But the end of first and second Kings and first and second Chronicles end with the Israelites being sent off into exile into Babylon because they have not followed what God has called them to do. Esther and Daniel are books that are written while they are in exile. And today we get to Ezra, who 
has his partner Nehemiah, which we'll hear about, I believe, next week or in two weeks. And then Zechariah and Haggai are prophetic books written during this time when the people have returned to the land. So Ezra, like I said, doesn't begin with Ezra, but with a declaration of the king of Persia at the time, Cyrus. Ezra 1, verse 1 says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to also put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. What's interesting is archaeology has proven that this statement exists. In 1879, the Cyrus Cylinder was uncovered, which has written on it this proclamation of Cyrus in the ancient writing form of cuneiform, that this was sent out over the land of Persia saying, this is what Cyrus decrees, this is what Cyrus is doing. Now, if you actually read it and translate it, it reads a little bit differently than what is in Ezra. Reading this, Cyrus does everything. Cyrus is the one who's in charge. Cyrus is the one who is king of the whole world. It reads this way. He, Marduk, Marduk is the big Babylonian god of the time, searched. He looked through them and sought a righteous prince after his own heart. That's a familiar phrase. Whom he took by the hand. He called Cyrus, king of Anshan, by name, and he appointed him lordship over the whole world. To Asher and Susa, Agod, Esenog, Zambin, Metnuru, Deri, and the territory to the land of Kutu, the cities on the other side of the Tigris whose sites were of ancient foundation. The gods who resided in them I brought back to their places and caused them to dwell in a residence for all time. Cyrus takes the captive people in Babylon, which included the Jews and a lot of other people, and said, go back home. Take your gods with you. Here's the stuff that Babylon looted from you. Please take that back and go serve your gods, but don't forget to serve the Persian Empire along the way. It was interesting, something that a king had never really done. And if you compare the two proclamations in the Cyrus Cylinder and in Ezra, you can see that they're similar. But again, in, the, in Cyrus's proclamation, it's all about him. I brought them back to their places. I caused them to dwell back in their residence. I sent them back. So when the Jews come back at the beginning of Ezra, and we don't have much time to get into the whole history there, but if you ever wondered if bureaucracy is in the Bible, you'll find it in the first six chapters of Ezra as letters are written back and forth from Jerusalem to the Persian government saying, hey, stop building the temple. No, you said we could rebuild it. Okay, rebuild it again. Stop building the temple. No, we said you could build it. Build it again. Okay. Finally, after much letter writing, they get the temple rebuilt and worship begins. And if you go back to Cyrus, he may have thought that he was kind of using God, if you think about it. If I send the people back to their land, let them worship the God that they choose, then maybe their God will be happy, and their God will bless my kingdom. Or maybe just the people will be happy that I've sent them back home so that they can worship their God, and they will serve me 
and my kingdom. But what the proclamation in Ezra, the way that Ezra sees it, it turns it around and says, no, 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 it's not Cyrus who's doing everything. It's God who's behind everything. God is the one moving Cyrus. God is the one sending his people back. God is the one causing the temple to be rebuilt. I think right up here, up front, we should be leery of people who try to play the Cyrus game. Leaders, often political, will rally religious images around them, rally religious leaders around them to curry favor and say, look, look, aren't we so religious? Isn't this great? Follow me. Do what I say. But we, as people of faith, need to remember that it is God who moves the world and not its leaders. We have to always keep listening for where God is at work, to hear the tune that God is playing behind all of the messiness. We should keep our eyes on God. Whether the world realizes or not, again, God is always at work. So how do we keep our ears tuned to God's song? Well, that's for Ezra comes in. Ezra chapter 7. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Meriath, the son of Zeruiah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest. You go to seminary to learn how to say all those things. But the son of Aaron, the chief priest, remember that. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher, well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh month of the year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to its teaching and its decrees and the laws of Israel. You ever been in a space or part of a group where you kind of look around and think, somebody should take charge here. Somebody should really lead. And the more you look around and take stock of the group, you realize, oh man, I am that person. This is my responsibility. I have the skills that this group needs. I have the leadership capabilities that this group needs to continue moving. My wife, Courtney, served in Young Life for many years, down the hill in Placer County. And one summer, the area director was forced to step down. And they had already planned camps and other events for the summer. And Courtney was faced with the decision, well, somebody should lead this or else all of this stuff is going to have to shut down. We can't go to camp. We can't gather for our groups. And she realized, man, I'm the one who needs to do this. If I don't take charge, then none of this is going to happen. So she took kids to camp in Canada, crossing a border, camp called Malibu, which is very different than Southern California, Malibu. 
She knew that that's what needed to happen, what God was calling her for in that moment so that those kids could still experience the summer that they had hoped for, so those kids could still have an interaction with God that summer. She was the right person for the job. And I think that's what Ezra is in this story. He is the right person for the job at this moment. If you trace through his family history and get all through those hard names, you get to the end that he is in the line of Aaron, the first and chief priest in the Old Testament, connecting him all the way back to Moses. He was a scribe. He was a teacher of the law, well-versed in God's word and the law. He had influence with the king of Persia and with the Jewish people, so much so that the king at the time, Darius, Artaxerxes, I'm sorry, said, you can go back. But what's most important, I think, to hear in this verse is not all the names, not the leader who sent him, but it appears twice in what I read, and it's that the hand of God was with him. The hand of God was on Ezra. Again, it's God at work. Because the hand of the Lord my God was on me, Ezra says. I took courage and gathered leaders from Israel to go up with me. Ezra was so tuned in to God, he knew the song, he knew the artist, and he was prepared to lead wherever that song was taking him. The hand of God was on Ezra because Ezra had a relationship with God, with God's word and with God's people. And the hand of God, the hand of God had given him influence for this very moment. The king had granted Ezra everything he asked because the hand of God was on him. Ezra was so convinced that God was with him that he didn't even ask for a military escort from Babylon back to Jerusalem. That's a long way, and there's lots of bad people on that way. Ezra 8 says, I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from our enemies on the road because we had told the king the gracious hand of God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against those who forsake him. And then Ezra says, the hand of our God was on us and he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. Ezra didn't rely on the powers of the king and the government. He kept his eyes and faith on God and where God was directing. Ezra went back in faith because he could see that God was the one moving. God was the one in charge of what was happening. The temple was being rebuilt. Those in captivity were being allowed to go back home. Now Ezra, as a student of God's word, probably saw what was going on. Because if he had read and was familiar with the prophets, he would start to say, oh, this is what God had been promising he would do all along. Jeremiah 29, very famous passage of scripture you're probably familiar with. This is what the Lord says, when the 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all of the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you in exile. 
Ezra saw this happening in front of his eyes, and he knew that he needed to go, that he was called for this very moment to lead the people back and to bring them back to God's word. (coughs) Revival and restoration, we need to remember first and foremost, are always dependent upon God's action. We can pray, we can ask for revival all we want, but if it's not God who moves, if it's not God who initiates the revival and change, it's not going to happen. But if we've trained ourselves like Ezra, we can see its roots spring up. We can hear the tunes start to be played and we can begin to respond to it. <clears throat> if we are connected to his word, if this is central for us like it was for Ezra, it will be easier for us to stay tuned in. So whether the world realizes it or not, God is always at work. But it is the responsibility of God's people to see it. Now, if we haven't been connected to God's word, or like the Israelites have been in Babylon for a long time, they've probably felt a little bit lost. They're not sure where they're going or or what step they should take next. And if you're lost, what do you need? Do you need this? Anybody remember that guy? It looks like you're writing a letter. No, Clippy, I'm not writing a letter. I'm writing a sermon. No, you need a map. And I have kids. I've watched a lot of Dora. So you get Dora's map. For Ezra, the map was Scripture. Now, again, I'm mixing my metaphors. So I've talked a lot about songs, but I'm not as familiar with musical score and stuff. So I'm going to go with the map. But the map is Scripture. If you're lost, you need to reorient yourselves on the path that you were going. You need to remind yourself of the tune. And that requires seeing where you've come from to know where you're going to chart your new, new path forward. Ezra knew it, but he realized the people needed to know it as well. So Ezra gets up in front of the people and he reads the Bible. In the next book over, Nehemiah, because Ezra and Nehemiah are working together in their contemporaries. Nehemiah chapter 8 says, So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon, as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Now, what's interesting about Scripture is, yes, we can read it, and we can see what's in here and hear the words preached like Ezra did to the people. But if it stops there, there's really no power here. And what Ezra realized as he was reading it to the people was that a response was required. They needed to do something. God was calling them to do something. And Ezra, in, the mo- in that moment, realized that their response needed to be repentance and confession. Now, you'll take note that Ezra did not then tell everybody, okay, everybody, line up. Y'all are going to confess to me. Come down the aisle and give me your confessions. No, what Ezra does is he's the first in line. He stands up and begins confessing for the sins of the people as if he committed them. Ezra chapter 9, I too am ashamed and disgraced. 
my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. Ezra stands up and he is the one who begins the confession. I too am ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to you, my God, he says. He confesses the sins for his people and he leads them that way, which is interesting then because that leads the people to respond. Because he went first, because he set the pace, because he led them where they needed to go, they were able to respond. Chapter 10, while Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him, and they too wept bitterly. I think Ezra's heroic action is not just knowing Scripture, not just traipsing across the wilderness with a bunch of people to get to Jerusalem, following where God is leading But I think it's right here in this moment when he reads the word of God to the people and leads them in confession, leads them in that response to what God was calling them to do. And when we confess, that allows for us to be free of whatever's holding us back. It allows us to then reorient to hear God's tune in our lives rather than be distracted by whatever troubles we have, whatever sins are in our hearts and minds. When we confess, our eyes can be more open to see where it is God is leading. If you read after the confession and what Ezra actually calls then the people to do after they've confessed, you might hit a little bit of a bumpy road. Because what he sees and what he asks the people to do is they've married a bunch of foreign wives at that point because they've been in Babylon or some people have stayed in the land. And Ezra says, here's what we're going to do after this confession. Everybody's going to divorce all their foreign wives and send their kids away. Now that would be an awkward sermon to preach on Father's Day. It's not what I'm here to preach to you. I was struggling with that part a lot because, yeah, I'm a dad and I would not want to divorce my wife or send my kids away. That's hard. And I was like, what's going on there? But then, literally sitting in the front front row last week, listening to Mike preach about Ruth, I was like, oh, Ruth is a foreign wife. Ruth was a Moabite. She was part of a people group that God specifically said, don't marry those people. But Ruth was brought into God's family because of her faithfulness and was included in Jesus's genealogy. Rahab in Jericho, a Canaanite woman of all people, was brought into God's family and included in the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus had multiple interactions with foreign women and foreign men and included them in his community and in God's people. So is this a blanket statement in scripture to divorce all the foreign wives and have nothing to do with foreign people? I don't think so. Lord, I think it was necessary for that moment because the Jewish people were hanging on by a thread. 
They had survived exile in Babylon by holding true to what God had asked them to do. And now they needed to keep doing that and they needed to eliminate whatever distractions they may have. But Scripture then tells us that the story is greater for who God can bring into his family. And again, you'll notice that my point today had nothing to do with divorcing wives. But it was whether the world realizes it or not, God is always at work. It's the responsibility of God's people to see it, to point it out, and to respond in faith. Often when we read God's word, when we come here to Sunday morning worship, when we participate in small groups, growth groups, Bible studies, when we're in a mentoring relationship, or maybe just hanging out with other Christian friends around a dinner table, we're going to be asked to make a change. We're going to be asked to reorient our lives towards God's music and God's tune. And I think like Ezra in this story, our response should always be preceded by confession. Ezra recognized that. Recognized that confession was necessary for the reorientation of the Jewish community. He recognized that the sins of his people He recognized what the sins of his people were and that he needed to lead that confession. So in conclusion, I think we should consider what should we be the first to stand up and confess for today? What does we as a community here in Nevada County need to confess? What do we as a church in the wider Christian community in the United States and in the world need to confess? Maybe Like Cyrus at the very beginning, it's our desire to be connected to power. If we connect ourselves with this specific leader, we'll have power, we'll have influence. Neglecting that it's God is the one who gives us the influence. In our community here, what's the history? We sit on Native American land. We live in a community that has extreme wealth and extreme poverty. This has defined Nevada City and Grass Valley ever since the Empire Mine was established. As Christians, how about our misuse of Scripture? To build ourselves up and then to tear others down. What is it that we need to confess today? To lead the way to hear God again, and to reorient ourselves on the path that God wants each and every one of us to Yeah.